are listening to Stride of Nutrition's Ingredients for Success podcast, where you can consume dietary supplement industry best practices, trends, news, and other insights provided through interviews and discussions with industry professionals and members of the Stratum Nutrition team. Welcome back to the Ingredients for Success podcast. I'm your host, David Hoover. Today, our guest is Asa Waldstein. Asa is a certified clinical herbalist and a 20-year dietary supplement executive who is principal of the consulting company Supplement Advisory Group, a boutique group focusing on marketing risk analysis and practical marketing solutions for the web and social media. He chairs the American Herbal Products Association, which is the AHPA Cannabis Committee. Welcome to the show, Asa. Wonderful. David, thanks so much for having me on this wonderful podcast. I've listened to a few recent episodes and it's a great honor to be here. So thanks again for the invite. Oh, absolutely. And the honor is all ours for sure. So um, before we get going, I actually wanted to let you know one thing I appreciate about you is you providing your name pronunciation on your LinkedIn profile. (laughs) (laughs) So this little audio feature allowed me to have to avoid the how do you pronounce your name question when we first connected and also my attempt to pronounce it incorrectly, more than likely. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) So a lot of people don't pay. Sorry about that. A lot of people don't um, look at the pronunciation aspect of LinkedIn, but it is out there. If you're ever curious how to pronounce someone's name, oftentimes they put the pronunciation feature. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I was going to say, I have to admit, I did not know about this feature. So I would recommend to everyone that you take a moment to implement this on your LinkedIn. Thank you for teaching me something I did not know. <laughs> they say you learn something new every day. And that's what I learned. All right. So I like to start with a three question warm up. Full disclosure to our listeners, I did provide Ace to the first question prior to the show, but questions two and three are surprise questions. Asa, what was the last movie you saw and what would you rate it? In the essence of transparency, the last movie I saw was the late 90s movie Swingers. <laughs> it's very classic. <laughs> Vince Vaughn and John yeah. Favreau and I think Heather Graham's in there. It's just a very classic 90s movie. I watched it on Sunday when I was just kind of feeling lazy and I would rate it. <laughs> Uh, about one and three quarters thumbs up. It was pretty darn good. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it just really encapsulates the late late nineties. And Vince Vaughn is so young in there; it's it's hilarious. Oh yeah, young Vince Vaughn, and he's a very funny guy. Question two: What is your go-to song when you're alone, jamming in the car? Okay, uh, this is a good surprise. It is Ruben and Charisse by the Grateful Dead. A certain mm. version of it, which is the Oregon State Penitentiary 1982 version of Ruben and Charisse. You can tell I'm a dead fan by that answer. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I actually do not know that one. I'll send you a link. And and uh, fun fun aside on that is at my wedding seven years ago, my wonderful wife said, honey, you're allowed to pick five Grateful Dead songs for the entire you know wedding DJ. And that <laughs> Oregon State Penitentiary Ruben and Charisse Grateful Dead was what closed out our wedding. Um, uh, <laughs> that's awesome, man. Yeah. Love to hear that. All righty. Um, number three, does pineapple belong on a pizza and why or why not? Well, uh, my wife is somewhat allergic to pineapple, so she is very oh. opposed to pineapple and all things. But in my mm-hmm. opinion, I think pineapple does belong on pizza. I think it works well. Okay, so you do the do the pineapple. Is it with the like Canadian bacon? I just think that's that that is that is how that is how I'd roll with it. In in marriage, you know, it's 
It's the one thing that I've had to let go of is when I share a pizza with my wife, we don't oh, do yeah. pineapple on the pizza. But yeah, when I'm when I'm out, I get a slice, maybe late night, I'll do a yeah, Canadian bacon and pineapple. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry to hear that she has that pineapple allergy. But um for me, uh no, it does not belong on a pizza, unless it's like a dessert pizza that has some sweets on it. Okay, let's get to the hard-hitting stuff. Enough fun. I'd like to talk about a misconception of marketing claims. I'm in marketing, so this is right up my alley. Uh, let's say that I want to use a claim that is very, very risky, but I want to make some sales on it, right? So remember, I'm in marketing. I have a creative way to get around that. I'm just going to go in and I'm going to say may or might or could in front of that. I'm good to go, right? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> not really. Not really, David. <laughs> so I, I think of these suggestive words such as may and could and might as the compliance version of with all due respect. If I mm-hmm. say with all due respect, that doesn't then allow me to say something mean about someone. So they, <laughs> they don't really provide any protection. And actually last year, there was an FDA warning letter where a company was cited for a very over-the-top egregious example where they said may help with depression and anxiety. That's kind of a mm-hmm. very, again, over-the-top example of something that was cited in the warning letter. And also in the FTC's new health products compliance guide, they refer to these as vague qualifying terms. And actually FTC addresses these. So um, not only does does FDA in their warning letter and their precedents really kind of um, show us that these these qualifying terms such as may and could and should really are marketing, but FTC in their new compliance guide goes above and beyond and really demonstrates that yes, if you're saying may and could and should, that's the same thing as saying a product will do something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'd agree. And I learned that early on. Uh, our regulatory team, which shout out to our regulatory team, love love them. Um, I was like, oh, come on, you know, let's just throw a little, you know, maybe in there or something. We're good to go. Um, but they were quick to let me know that's not how it works. And of course, we all do want to avoid getting a warning letter um, and red flags from the FDA. Good information there. Good advice. And I one more uh, thing I did one more thing I did want to add, if I may, is sure. We, the authorities, they look at what's called the reasonable consumer expectation, or what would the consumer net impression be, the takeaway from a consumer reading your advertisement. So when mm-hmm. we're looking at advertisements, uh, we always want to keep in mind, what would a reasonable consumer take away from this? So it really makes it hard as a marketer. But um, yeah, I'm glad that your wonderful regulatory team you know, brought, brought, that, brought that to the surface several, uh, you know, several years ago. And really taught taught everyone about yeah if you're if the intent of the advertisement is to say a product will help with the disease we always want to steer clear of that that's great and one thing nikita i will name her sorry shout out to you nikita again love our regulatory um she's like so what what are you you know she would come to me and say what are you trying to convey let's figure out um you know it's not just a no you can't say this let's let's figure out a way to say it that makes it safe you know, what, what's the message you're really trying to convey? So glad that they come back and say, you know, can we say it this way? Or, you know, what are you trying to convey? Let's work together. So it's good, good stuff. So I really love that, David. And that's, that's a rare find in a regulatory mm-hmm. person. So yeah, huge props on that. And a quick, a quick aside, that's really the core of my consulting practice is how do we look at things that are risky and talk about them in a truthful, ethical, and effective way in a lower risk manner? How do we get the marketing message across in a way that's correct without getting us in trouble? So I'm really glad to hear that you have that expertise in-house at your company. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's amazing. And like you say, it's it's rare. So uh, yeah, we really appreciate it here. Let's uh, let's go into FDA and enforcement. All right. Uh, what new enforcement trends do you expect for 2023? All right. Here's my crystal ball. Well, <laughs> there's actually been three FDA CBD related warning letters already this year. And last year, CBD warning letters were up 485% over 2021. So this is a continued trend that I expect to go well into 2023, especially especially for CBD and animal products. So if someone's selling a cannabinoid product for animals, they want to be very careful. Also, I expect biomarker claims such as cholesterol reductions, bad fat reduction, plaque reduction, lowering A1C, anything really in this heart disease or blood sugar space, I expect to see FDA in particular really kind of drill down on this. So in the past, um, FDA especially has focused on claims related to diseases, overt disease claims, diabetes, hypertension, that type of thing. But based on a big, the big seven warning letters, I call it late last year, this really signals a narrowing uh, viewpoint of FDA when they're looking at heart disease and blood sugar diabetes related claims. So anything in the, in the here uh, prevents plaque, lowers bad fats category is now an implied heart disease or blood sugar related claim and should be avoided. Also, mental health-related claims, this should come as no surprise, they continue to be top of mind for the authorities, and I expect mental health-related claims, anxiety, depression, even insomnia, these kind of buzzwords or marketing around these type of buzzwords to continue uh, well into 2023. That kind of goes along with pandemic, um, the economy, um, you know, people are stressed out there. And so um, the FDA for sure is probably going to put a little more uh, scrutiny on uh, terms uh, such as those. Without a doubt, with, without a doubt. We want to be very, we want to be very careful with anything, of course, in the mental health space or really anything that can be looked at as profiteering off um, the repercussions of the pandemic. I know that's mm-hmm. that's pretty obvious and all the listeners know that, but I just wanted to <laughs> state the obvious point. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. So what are what are maybe some other enforcement trends? Yeah. All right. So this is really interesting. So talking about ingredient benefits has led to several warning letters. So this will be really interesting for the audience here. So let's use just a random hypothetical example of product turmeric. If Uh a company talks about the benefits of turmeric using disease words, maybe in a blog or social post, something like that, even if there's no cross-linking, this is a marketing claim if turmeric is a component of a product sold on the website. So a few years ago, maybe even two to three years ago, the FDA was pretty hands-off if companies talked about the ingredients in their products and didn't cross-link. Hey, and that's why you should buy my Turmeric Plus product type of thing. Mm-hmm. But that really shows the enforcement trends really show that even talking about an ingredient, if that ingredient sold on on the website, that is considered a marketing claim. Again, even if there's no cross-linking. Kind mm-hmm. of on the same vein also is citing clinical studies. So <laughs> people oftentimes ask, hey, can I cite clinical studies? And based on enforcement trends, if a company is citing a clinical study and it has an ingredient in the name and a disease word, such as turmeric for arthritis, that's considered a marketing claim. Again, even if it's on a educational blog part of a website. And citing clinical studies 
is marketing claims. And this does include, of course, the name of the study and the URL. So we want to be very careful with that. Now, a few other ones, claims made in blogs. <laughs> this is really fascinating. So claims made in blogs are increasingly showing up in FDA warning letters. And I know what everyone's saying out there. Of course, we shouldn't make claims on our website. But what about these educational blogs, David? What about these blogs where we're talking about, I'll, use, I'll continue on with the example of turmeric. What, what about these educational blogs? It might be uh, something titled like tips for arthritis care. It would start off by saying tips for arthritis care. Here's what arthritis is. Here's where it comes from. You can meditate. You can stretch. You can go snowboarding every Monday and Thursday, like I really hope to do whenever there's good snow here in Colorado. Oh, and by the way, we've got this ingredient turmeric that I wanted to tell you about, or we've got this product. So it's kind of educational, but then saying, hey, we've got a solution for this disease. I call this the common blog writer trap. Also, the authorities are looking back years and years ago on companies' websites. So if, uh, let's say there's a blog that might be five, six, seven, eight years old on a company website, that's forgotten. But in the eyes of the authorities, this is an active piece of marketing. So companies want to always go through not just their new their new content, but their really old content to make sure that there's not anything lurking out there. Um, also, um, old social media posts, just like uh, just like blogs, the FDA is looking back several years on a company's social media post. Even an eight-year-old tweet can be considered an active piece of marketing. And also, lastly, you can tell I like this stuff, right? I could talk all day about enforcement. I really, really love it. That's why I built my entire consulting company around this is interpreting enforcement trends. Lastly, is GMP inspections leading to website review. So what I mean by this is in the past, FDA would look at a website before they before they come in. Hey, Asa Waldstein, we've We've looked at your website. We saw a couple things that are claims, and we're here to do a GMP inspection. They probably still do that, but now there's a trend that I've noticed over the past 12 to 16 months or so where FDA does a GMP inspection. And then up to 12 months later, we'll probably when they're doing the inspection closeout, then they look at the website. So companies are being cited for claims on their website. So my, I guess the key takeaway here is for all the audience, all the listeners, is if you have been recently inspected by FDA, go back and really scour your website to make sure that there's not any disease words just kind of hanging out there. Um, even companies that might have a robust quality and regulatory system now, oftentimes I, I have a program where I've developed where I can find risky words that are just forgotten, again, in these old blogs or these old depths of a company website. And guess what? If I can find them, the FDA can find them. <laughs> Absolutely. That is a lot of good information. I want to go back to the eight-year-old tweet. When you were saying that, I'm thinking about, I wonder what I tweeted eight years ago. Oh, is man. it going to be something that so yeah, um, the FDA is there to enforce and regulate. Yeah, if you think that they're not looking through, you know, old tweets, old posts, old blog posts, like you said, you know, you may need to take a step back, really look back, evaluate the saying that once it's on the internet, it never goes away. I mean, that's kind of true. Be careful what you put out there. 
So. Yeah, without a doubt. I, my silly joke is sometimes I get bored on a Saturday night, but I've never been so bored that I looked at an eight-year-old tweet or Facebook post or something. <laughs> um, and and again, you know, and that that eight-year-old tweet that I that I cited was actually a retweet. So it was a company retweeting something with some disease words and then uh-huh. adding some commentary in there. So you know that. I, is it is it fair to kind of look at that as an active piece of marketing? I think that's debatable because probably yeah. the only, um, the only folks looking at a several year old social media post are um, probably probably the agencies. But it is what it is. We're looking at enforcement trends and we're reporting back for your your audience here. Mm-hmm. Yep, and we want our audience to avoid these mistakes. So, absolutely great information. And that so that kind of jumps us into social media. What are some examples of things companies have been getting in trouble for on social media? Yeah, I love that question. But before I answer that, I just wanted to kind of parse out social media and and Mm -hmm. enforcement. So when we look at social media, of course, the the authorities are paying close attention to platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But surprisingly, there's been no FDA action related to claims made on TikTok. TikTok is huge we all we all know this even i have a tiktok regulatory channel it's not very that very well followed i'm not doing dances or anything but there's so many over the top egregious claims being made on tiktok so when we look at enforcement really the authorities are focusing on the big platforms but not yet tiktok so i guess if i had to make another prediction for 2023 2024 it'd be more enforcement of claims made on tiktok Also, claims made in YouTube um, used to be relatively rare. I think last year, FDA cited nine companies for claims made in YouTube. So this is even small companies. One warning letter at the end of last year, I got really excited when I read this, and I I went to the video, is a claim cited in a warning letter last year on a YouTube video only had 50 views. So that's that's like nothing, right? If a company, if a video is out there, and and they you know they think oh i'm i'm too small i'm not on the fda's radar guess what a youtube video with only 50 views was cited in a warning letter so we want to be oh wow we want to be cognizant of that so back to your question <laughs> what <laughs> what are companies getting into trouble for well first is hashtags an an uncompliant or disease hashtag is the quickest way to turn an otherwise compliant post into a non-compliant post just with the disease hashtag, such as putting hashtag arthritis on a company's social media post. Now, this is really interesting. A new trend resurfaced with um, a couple warning letters late last year, and this is liking a post or saying thanks to a post. So we haven't seen FDA warning letters cite this in a couple years. So what happened is, a customer wrote something on a company's Facebook wall or Instagram wall. And it was something to the effect of, hey, this product worked great for my fill in the disease word. Now, the authorities have been pretty hands-off if companies just leave that alone. But because the company liked it, that is considered endorsing the testimonial. Even in this recent warning letter, saying thanks. Hey, thanks for that comment even though it's not directly saying, hey, you can buy your product to prevent your disease, even engaging with it is called endorsing the testimonial, which I found really, really fascinating. So fight the urge to engage with disease posts. And I know what all the social media managers out there are saying, what do you mean you're telling me not to engage? (laughs) Again, I'm just saying, here's what companies are getting into trouble for. I think the strategy that some other companies are taking is 
not publicly engaging and perhaps sending them a private message thanking them for you know for their comment that's mm. that's maybe one one possible idea and lastly is reposting companies are responsible for any content they repost uh, such as a clinical study um this study finds that Turmeric is great for arthritis. If you're a product company that sells turmeric in any of your your products, <laughs> um, that's considered a marketing claim, even if you, even mm-hmm. just reposting it. So let's say you repost this, that's considered a marketing claim. But if you repost it with commentary, such as, and here's why we put turmeric in our products, the more attention or the more commentary you mm-hmm. add to that, the higher um, the higher likelihood uh, you will be of being scrutinized for that. Right. Even if it's just, you know, maybe maybe you have a branded turmeric, even if it's not if it's not mentioning your brand. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about those trigger words. Right. If it was if the if the title of the post was turmeric for quality of life or maybe even something a little more benign, such as turmeric for athletic recovery, pretty low likelihood that's going to be scrutinized. But if the title or the meta description has those, again, those trigger words, disease words, such as arthritis, that's something that then elevates the risk. And I can see, I can see, like you said, the social media managers out there, I can see some eyes going wide open and because market, social media marketing management, I mean, it, it revolves around engagement, liking, sharing. So you, yeah, you really, really have to be careful. You have to, to fight that urge to, all right, well, I'm going to go and like anything that mentioned you know, whatever, you have to really think about that. Um, because again, we want to avoid getting that warning letter. So that's a lot, lot of great information there. So I really appreciate that insight on that. Thank you. And you know, it is, it's really a fine line, right? It's not that we shouldn't engage. When do we engage? What are the best practices for engagement? And I work mm-hmm. with a lot of companies at my consulting practice of helping them develop these best practices. Um, oftentimes these either mid-size, you know, $50 million to larger $100 million, $150 million plus companies will hire me and my small team to come in and do trainings for the social media team and the marketing team of best practices for social media engagement, for example. And really my goal at Supplement Advisory Group is to help my clients develop this in-house expertise and really to make them or make you the regulatory experts. So that's one of the fun, um, the fun offers that we that we um that we can do for for some of the companies out there. Absolutely. It, like you talked about, it's with our regulatory like team is figure out what um, you know, you guys as consultants help them figure out. All right, came up with a game plan. You know, the, these this here is probably a definite no. But here's some things, um, you know, let's outline here. What can you like? What can you share? Just cross your T's, dot your I's, all that. So speaking of warning letters and everything, you have a newsletter that I'm a big fan of. It is the Warning Letter Wednesday. Can you talk more about it, how it came about, and how long have you been doing that letter? Thank you. Well, Warning Letter Wednesday is a weekly regulatory post where I review interesting primarily FDA warning letter enforcement trends, and I'll I'll come up with a few key takeaways. Here's what we can learn. Here's really, if we peel back the layers of the onion, here's what we can learn by looking at this warning letter. And it's really a labor of regulatory love. So warning letter Wednesday, the FDA used to always drop their warning letters on Wednesday, which is kind of where this phrase got um, got coined. But now mm-hmm. they're kind of dropping most of their warning letters on Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, which is really great for me because 
Tuesday night, my wife knows that after dinner, I'm going to stay up late and not come to bed until 11 o'clock or so because I'm staying up writing Warning Letter Wednesday. So uh-huh. I really, so I've been I've been writing Warning Letter Wednesday uh, for the past 18 months or so, and all these posts are on are on my website at asawaldstein.com. And the reason I started writing Warning Letter Wednesday is to really help fill the knowledge gap. It can be confusing to to know how to read between the lines of warning letters. But this is actually one of the very few things that I'm good at, David, which is looking (laughs) at warning letters and reading between the lines with enforcement trends as a way to adjust our marketing and stay out of trouble. So again, Mm -hmm. my Warning Letter Wednesday post is intended to teach others how to stay on top of enforcement trends and really keep them out of trouble. And I started as a LinkedIn um, post, but it became so popular that I moved it over to my website So I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of weekly subscribers, including people that are very high up in government agencies and tops of companies. So I'm I'm very honored. Wow. I've got got some very notable uh, weekly readers of this post. Wow, that's amazing. Can you drop any names or no? (laughs) Unfortunately not, um, because they probably wouldn't be they probably wouldn't be too happy, but it's name it's names in high up agencies that we're that we're all familiar with. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I enjoy I enjoy reading them, and you you can analyze what warning letters were sent, and then you can analyze and kind of see all right, what are they looking at um, right now, or what what are trends like we talked about earlier, and so then that's how you go and help uh, businesses or whatever you 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 see what's coming from the FDA, and then you can say all right, this is what they're looking at, this is let's let's work together to figure out um, how to avoid that. It's a great piece. Uh, again, where can uh, listeners sign up for that at? Yeah, you can go to my website, which is asawaldstein.com and click on Warning Letter Wednesday. So it's asawaldstein.com and click on Warning Letter Wednesday. And I've just added a new feature that I wanted to tell everyone about. I've made all my Warning Letter Wednesday posts searchable by keyword. So you can go to asawaldstein.com, Warning Letter Wednesday, or just type in Warning Letter Wednesday ASA, and it ranks pretty high in Google. And then you can t- you can search by keyword. So if you want to search by the word anxiety or CBD or depression or whatever it may be, you can go ahead and type that in the search bar and it'll pull up all the Warning Letter Wednesday posts. Um, by date that have these keywords in them. I found I really developed this as a, a useful tool for marketers and regulatory teams to, to really check in on specific keywords and phrases, really as a way to help keep you out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great feature. I'm glad you added that. I'll have to check that out. I, again, enjoy Wednesday, looking through my email and seeing that warning letter Wednesday. It's neat that they went to Tuesday, so that gives you some time to prep and then push it out there. So yeah, thanks, uh, FDA. Appreciate that. <laughs> right. So, Asa, do you have anything else to add? Well, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about quality and compliance and really helping people get their marketing message across in a way that's truthful, ethical, not misleading, but also effective, right? If we can't get our marketing message away across in a way that's effective, our customers or the people out there can't get our health giving products. So, I just wanted to say thank you so much, David, for inviting mm-hmm. me on this podcast. It's been really fun. This could be an hours and hours long discussion, and I hope <laughs> we can continue that this conversation at an upcoming trade show. Absolutely. I um, am honored to have you on the show. I appreciate your time. Uh, I am looking forward to uh, connecting with you at a show coming up and just having some chat. Very, very much appreciate Asa for being on the show. Thanks again, my friend. Appreciate it. Yep.
and uh shout out to all regulatory out there and then i guess we could leave with the uh good old 90s regulators mount up